0: I'm Carson Sestuli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. Does his work in the trenches, or perhaps one, uh, instead of saying the trenches, perhaps one would say say that today's guest does his work on the front lines. However you say it, um, martial vernacular is required. The parlance of war is required to discuss what David Laurola is doing, I, um, D- David Laurola is the guest. He uh, he is the curator of the Q and A series that runs at Fangraphs. Um, I don't know actually what David Laurola's military history is. Um, he's older than I am. I don't know uh, what he is, but I could say that uh, it is it is important. It is necessary to utilize the terminology of uh, combat uh, when discussing Laurola's position on Team Fangraphs. He's. Uh, he talks to players. Uh, he he talks to coaches. He recently talked to Alan Nathan, who is a uh, had probably has multiple PhDs in physics. This is uh, this is how uh, David Lorelai conducts his business. Lorelai recently uh, was uh, reported per fan gaps reported uh, from the World Series. In fact, all six games at the World Series, and it's about that same World Series uh, uh, that we spend uh, the majority of our conversation uh, talking. Uh, there's also a little bit of conversation if you're interested in this sort of thing, towards the end on Cardinals prospect. Of course, the Cardinals, uh, of course, the Cardinals were in the World Series, but Cardinals prospect Stephen Piscotty, a Stanford grad. I don't know if he's a grad. I don't know if he's officially an alumnus yet. Uh, one only assumes that he's working towards that. Uh, but uh, Stephen Piscotty, who's currently in the Cardinals organization, recently. Uh, Lorela published an interview with him as well a and a with him as well but m- mostly what we're talking about here is the World Series David Lorela was there he was there with his eyes he was there with his ears and uh, whatever the other three senses are you, it's for you to decide uh, but what is this? it's Fangraphs Audio it features David Lorela uh, who was at the World Series and has something to say about it and it begins right now
1: Mrs. Dooley, okay. it's uh, good to talk to you all the way over in France.
0: I am in France. Yeah. Oh, I should I should mention, David Lorla, if I uh, disappear, uh, it's likely not because I've died. Uh, it's likely because I, I do live in France and the Internet connection does not always work.
1: Uh, yeah. A flaw with France that, that we know well.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, the
1: Internet connection, I covered the World Series, as you know. That's, I think, a lot of what we're talking about. The Internet connection was very spotty. At Fenway Park, at least once during the World Series, much to the chagrin of hundreds of hardworking uh, sports writers.
0: Yeah, and actually, I've noticed that this is this is a thing that happens in a couple of press boxes, and I don't think there's any reason to name them. Um, and, and of course, I could understand it during the playoffs. I assume it's because there are so many people who are all using the same connection. If you if you were pressed, do you think you could produce a list of the top? Uh, like, you know, like 1 to 30 uh, Internet connections in Major League Press boxes?
1: <laughs> no, I couldn't do that, and, and I wouldn't want to try, but I can say that the stress level of a lot of writers gets very high when they're working on deadline, and suddenly they can't go to fan graphs or wherever they're going for a, a statistical bit that they need to put in their article, you know, that is due in, like, five minutes.
0: Right, yeah. Well, I've seen that even, and, of course, you'll, you'll be able to add to this in a... Um, I mean, having covered the World Series, uh, obviously the pressure is heightened. But I know that even even um, working regular season games, the turnaround is kind of silly f- for the uh, for the beat writers because as soon as the game's over, you'll see them. Well, <laughs> I don't know if, if beat writers sprint, but close to, <laughs> the close thing that's close to sprinting. Uh, they get down there quick to get their post game quotes, and I, I and they I assume at some level they have the story written that. To that point, you know they need the quotes. but of course, if the game has changed in the last half inning, then that has required rewriting. It's a, it seems like there's like there's a short time period after the game when a lot of stuff has to happen.
1: A lot of stuff, Carson. No, beat writers, I think we should all stand up and applaud the beat writers that you know that we all as, as readers, you know, deal with all year. It's easy to complain about, oh, he said this, he said that, there's a typo there. You know, I covered over 100 baseball games this year, which was a fraction of the number that a lot of beat writers did. I didn't do all the travel. You know, these guys work hard, and uh, and yes, they're doing a lot of work under multiple deadlines per night. So, you know, the guys who then had to extend this all the way through October, you know, say a Derek Gould in St. Louis, you know, maybe a Tim Britton in Boston. You know these guys put in you know a lot of effort, and uh, you know we should appreciate that as as baseball fans.
0: Yeah, actually, uh, Derek Gould has uh, has been a guest on Fangraphs Audio, and he I mean he's excellent. He's like a uh, he's like a Superman of beat writers because I mean this is not to discount the work of others, but he's like uh, he's like a fist, but he also knows like he's also pretty well acquainted with um, sort of like you know. Uh, the kind of basic concepts of sabermetrics, and he's he's really able to marry those two things. It, he, he was a, a fascinating guy to talk to. We could have spoken for a lot longer than we did.
1: No, De- Derek is, is a great guy. And, you know, back to the idea of, uh, of the hard work. I don't know if Derek drinks, but I would think that it would be hard <laughs> not to drink for a lot of people in this job. And, you know, and then jumping... Uh, you know, the St. Louis angle of drinking, one of the things I found interesting, because I had not traveled to St. Louis for baseball before, Missouri, or at least St. Louis proper, has the most liberal alcohol enforcement policies that that I've ever seen. There were plenty of people outside the ballpark just casually drinking beers, you know, walking by police officers on duty, you know, and I thought, well, you know, this is a ballpark, it's the World Series, blah, 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 but then I went for a stroll, and I'm Three, four blocks away from the ballpark, and there are people standing on the sidewalk in Cardinals gear, you know, drinking cans of, uh, of Budweiser, and I'm thinking, you know, you really can't do this in Boston. So maybe St. Louis baseball fans are very, very polite drunks, and uh, you know, it's not a public safety issue.
0: Now, wait, uh, is um, is it possible that you don't get arrested? Only if you're drinking Budweiser, but maybe if you're drinking a, a a sort of beer that's not from the Anheuser-Busch family of beers, perhaps then you'll you'll face uh, some some sort of penalty.
1: You know that is, that is quite possible. Yes, I I didn't think of that, Carson. Yeah, but... Um. I don't know what Mike Napoli was allegedly drinking at Boston, but you probably saw on Twitter photos of Mike Napoli walking shirtless through the city of Boston after the, the duck boat parade. <laughs> yes, yeah, I did notice and that. He and appar- he apparently was not drinking lemonade that night.
0: Yes, right. It was the hardest possible lemonade, if he was. Uh, it's It's actually not that surprising, I'll say, uh, to see Mike Napoli without a shirt, because frequently when he's playing, his his uh, at least his uniform shirt is unbuttoned uh, like halfway anyway. So it always seems like... He, He's just yearning to crawl out of his clothes.
1: There are some colorful players on the Red Sox team this year. I, I think that sort of states the obvious. Um, you know, Johnny Gomes is a colorful baseball player. Um, that does not mean he should have played much in the postseason, as he did. Uh, but, you know, very very colorful. He loves a good quote, which I think is why he made it a point <laughs> after the series ended to make fun of war, which which I thought was one of the more absurd things, you know that I've heard in a long time. He basically did it for effect, you know. Where in reality, he it was basically a quaint way of him saying that the team won despite him instead of because of him. When you look at the fact that by the numbers, he is a replacement level baseball player.
0: Yeah, it, it that was sort of interesting because correct me if I'm wrong, but for much of the season. Uh, the Red Sox played uh, basically a platoon in left field with Daniel Nava, who who didn't show up particularly well in terms of the fielding metrics, but had a, a really a, had a pretty stellar offensive campaign. And then and then uh, they would deploy Johnny Gomes in left field uh, frequently uh, against left-handed pitchers,
1: which is where Johnny Gomes has been a better-than-replacement level player in his career. You know, Gomes has, to his credit, hit better with runners and scoring position over his career and this year than without. But then again, Nava hit better with runners and scoring position than nobody on base this year as well. You know, and as for the Nava not being a good defender by the metrics, well, you know, that may or may not be true, but if you've ever watched Johnny Gomes play left <laughs> field, he makes a lot of fantastic catches. But that is essentially because the ball was hit over his head and he comes in, or vice versa. You know, he gets a terrible jump on baseballs. He, you know, he's not a defender. You know, Gomes was not out there because of his defense by, by any stretch of the imagination. Well, so let me... He was out there because, because John Farrell had a hunch. You know, I think it really boils down to that. Um, I said to somebody the other day that in 2003, Grady Little went by hunch instead of the numbers. And and this is an imperfect analogy, granted. Taking, you know, leaving Pedro in was a completely different animal. But Farrell played by Hunches a lot in this postseason, uh, but because it worked, he's lionized instead of run out of town on a rail.
0: Yeah. So, so you have, you know, you're one of the, those those few who. Uh, I mean, you don't just have access to Fangraphs and understand it, but you write for Fangraphs. At the same time, you also have access, in particular, to that front office. Just or not the front office, no, so, I mean, you, you would theoretically, but to the to John Farrell, you know, to that to that uh, that clubhouse. Um, it seems to me, I mean, we all know that the Red Sox are uh, probably m- more progressive than not, so far as player valuation goes, uh, so far as their willingness to ask. Uh, ask questions about the game uh, at the front office level and obviously obviously front offices in terms of communicating that information there's a there's a, i guess you could say a, a digestion sort of period and you only want to give players the sort of tools that they need to know to get better you don't want to give them all the information um, but I'm curious if you think if you suspect or if you know there was a disconnect there between the front office, and John Farrell in terms of Farrell's decision to, to deploy Johnny Gomes even against very tough right-handers uh, in the playoffs?
1: I really wish, Carson, I knew the answer to that. And I think it's one of those things that we're not going to know for a while, if ever, because there is a lot of conversation between the front office and the manager, as there is with a lot of teams throughout the course of the season. And any general manager is going to say that I don't make the lineup decisions; the manager does. And, then, and for the most part, that's true. But there is dialogue, and they influence those decisions. Um, I wanted to ask in the post World Series press conference at Fenway Park the other day how that dynamic changed in the postseason, if at all. But I basically knew I would not get an honest answer, so you know, so I didn't bother. But I do wonder if Ben Charrington and Tom Tippett and Bill James and all of the people who'd crunch those numbers for Boston agree w- with the logic. I mean, it worked, so you know, hindsight is, is twenty twenty.
0: Right, but and I guess well, I guess part of it, right, is if if the team fails, uh, and this is where even as a GM, you know, maybe you let it pass because if a team fails, the the then whether it's, it's it should be the case or not, fingers are pointed at the manager, right? And so I guess you give a manager the ability to make these other decisions, uh, you know, say with regard to lineup and um, field, you know, um, how, how players are deployed in the field, because he's the one who's going to get blamed. It's not it's not like all the reporters show up at Ben Charrington's office.
1: Exactly, and... In this specific case, we're talking about a situation where John Farrell's job is safe. Grady Little, in 2003, was probably out the door regardless of what happened. Um, I've said many times, had he he pulled Pedro and the Red Sox lost that game, everybody would have killed him for taking out the best pitcher of his generation uh, for a mediocre reliever in a clutch situation. You know, but really ultimately, to me, what a good manager does is he trusts the numbers, but he also recognizes what is most likely to work at any given time, as opposed to over 162 games. And, you know, that includes pitching decisions, you know, with Pedro. I think it definitely does with John Lester in the World Series. And I know Dave Cameron disagrees with me on this but I feel that leaving John Lester in rather than pinch hitting for him was absolutely the right decision. And I think John Farrell understood it on both a gut level and and a numbers level. Can you, uh, for Um, for
0: our sake, can you uh, just sort of summarize that that interval um, again, like precisely what
1: happened? Sure. I wrote about this after the game, and the idea to focus on this uh, was spurred by uh, a Twitter conversation. Uh, it was a crucial game. It was 1-1 in the, uh, I believe, the seventh inning, top of the seventh inning, and the Red Sox had a few runners on. John Lester was on deck. Um, you know, it was the question, should he be pinch hit for or should he not? David Ross then doubled to give the Red Sox the lead. Uh, and I was then surprised that more and more people were insisting, now you have to pinch hit for him because they're runners on second and third. You start, you know, there you get in, into run probability charts, of course, and the likelihood of the Red Sox scoring more. Uh, to me, there was certainly no guarantee they would score more had they pinch hit. The, Wainwright was throwing uh, the high strikeout rate of Mike Napoli, the likely pinch hitter in that situation but to me i think the the important thing is is you want your best pitcher on the mound it, it, you know in that situation and to me it's lester for for a number of reasons um and i sh- i can go over them here briefly first he was only at 69 pitches at the time you know in the regular season lester never threw fewer than 95 in a start you know most he threw was 124 Mm-hmm. And when Lester went deep into games, you know he is the a, when Lester is throwing well, he is the best pitcher on that staff, maybe the best pitcher not named, you know Koji Uehara. You know he was good. Um, I took a look at the numbers, and, and in innings seven through nine this year, um, opposing hitters have 504 OPS against him. Uh, the third time through the order, which was the crux of Dave Cameron's argument. Um, Hitters had a 726 OPS against Lester which was actually uh about 50 some points lower than the second time through the order. So basically John Lester when he pitched effectively enough to go deep into games, you know, he got better. So at 69 pitches, you know, he is the best he is the most likely pitcher on that entire staff outside of Uihara to get outs. And as it turned out, he did get those outs. And uh, the Red Sox won the game. So, again, there is some hindsight involved, but I think the numbers back this up, that in a general sense, Dave Cameron's point is right. In this specific sense, I think a lot of data points to leaving Lester in being the right decision.
0: Yeah, well, again, uh, I suppose it's it's one of those things where, uh, where the, the result, too, in terms of uh, public opinion, the result is uh, – is always going to inform people's perception of the decision, right? So maybe if, uh, if the Red Sox lose that game, uh, there's a, there's a bigger outcry about it regardless of what he did. If Farrell takes out Lester, the Red Sox lose. The decision is don't take out Lester. If he leaves Lester in and then Lester, you know, loses the game, right? So I guess you, at, at any point, you can only base, uh, you can only I guess critique a decision based off the information that's available at that time. You're suggesting that um, maybe not, it does not have something that applies to everyone, but there might be something with regard to Lester. When he's pitching well, he continues to pitch well, and uh, that's potentially what Farrell was looking at in that instance.
1: Correct. And of course, the fact that, you know, the Cardinals don't hit left-handed pitching, and the fact that the bullpen at that point was basically, you know, taxed. You know, Tozawa probably wasn't an option at the time. Um, he had pitched multiple games in a row, uh, but in limited, uh, you know, pitches, which ha- sort of has me concerned about just how strong he was. Because if you look at the World Series, uh, twice Tozawa pitched to only one batter. That is not typical Tozawa usage. He is not, you know, the right-handed version of a loogie. So I kind of wonder if he had run out of steam, Actually, carol had to be very careful with it with the usage.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that. I know that there were some comments. Um, Koji Uehara, I guess, uh, maintains a blog, which I, I hadn't known until, in fact, the World Series was over. But um, um, and the only reason I did know is because um, one of the comments was he made was that after the World Series was over, regardless of who won, he was going to drink a lot of beer. Uh, that was his <laughs> con- that was his comment. But. Um, one of the reasons he wanted to drink a lot of beer is because uh he was very um he was talking about how his, how uh exhausted he was um by the end of the the world series and uh, it's i guess it's something you don't necessarily think about um and i don't know if you know i think in particular american players would not be as frank about that um i i've i've seen few instances where that's the case but um of the way that a relief pitcher could be exhausted, right? Because we know that relievers um, are typically throwing um, closer to maximum effort than than starters are. Um, you know that's one of, and you know this is one of the reasons why relievers uh, post better in- uh, numbers on a per inning basis, um, is because they just sort of let everything hang out, as it were. Um of course, also they can be optimized against, you know, same-handed batters, et cetera. But I, ha- I hadn't really heard anything like that. I'm curious. Have you, have you sort of come across that where relievers talk about the ways that they, they might be exhausted?
1: Well, players will say that, sure, you know, I need, you know, another day. Uh, Felix Gibran, who is one of the unsung heroes of the postseason, um, you know, he had the great game uh, coming in for Clay Buckles, and that was really the swing wing game of the series. You know that the Cardinals had everything set up there. They're up two games to one. Buckles is throwing at far less than 100%. The Cardinals should have won that baseball game, and and had they done so, they probably won the World Series. But Debrant comes in, pitches, well, I believe it was two and a third. You know, great middle innings, and that was the second game in a row that he had pitched, or was that the first of two? I'm
0: well, in any case, yeah. Um, it's,
1: one, it's one or the other, Carson. But after the uh, his the second game, um, he was asked in the clubhouse, you know, Rob Bradford, one of the great uh, writers here in town, and I were speaking to him, and Rob asked him how his arm felt. And he admitted he was pretty sore. He said he would be ready for the next game, but, you know, he wasn't used to throwing two games in a row out of the pen. And, you know, so he was sore. There's no reason that a pitcher like Genichi Chizawa or a Craig Breslow or Koji Uohara weren't feeling the effects after a long, long season. And John Farrell knows the answers to these questions. Juan Nievis, the pitching coach, does. We do not because the players aren't that forthcoming on, on their health during the postseason. And that plays into some of the decision making that we question. As yeah, fans.
0: right. And and of course, it, I mean, if that was the case on the Red Sox side, it, I think it was even more strongly or curiously the case on the Cardinals side, because this is we saw what the uh, Shelby Miller and Edward Mujica, um, um, we saw them rostered, I think for all uh, for all of the very series. And I think they pitched like two innings between them, despite the fact that they were uh, that they were on those rosters. They were just uh, sitting there, basically.
1: And and Franklin Morales with the Red Sox did not pitch in the World Series. Oh, is
0: that you know, yeah, he right? Had really hor- he had the
1: really he had a really horrific outing against the Tigers, and um, you know he may have thrown his last pitch in a Red Sox uniform, but he was on the World Series roster.
0: Uh, yeah, you know, he I've...
1: simply he simply was not was not trusted. And I want to jump subject slightly here, on uh, Carson, on the idea of trust. Because, to me, uh, Daniel Nava having limited action in the postseason speaks to me that he is not completely trusted by John Farrell to perform on the big stage. And while Nava is the last person in the world who would bring that up and complain about it, um, somewhere in the back of his mind he must be questioning how much he is valued by the Boston Red Sox if a replacement-level player is playing in front of him in the World Series. I think that should be a concern.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, I mean, Nava's probably used to it by this point, right? Seeing as he what he was like team manager for for Santa Clara at one point on their baseball team, uh and he's been, you know, he's been dismissed all the way, so it uh this is uh not to say that he appreciates it, but it's probably not very surprising for him.
1: Um. Well, with the numbers he put up this year uh, against right-handed pitchers, you know, I think it was a slap in the face. You know, to be honest, you know, Nava deserved to be out on the field uh, basically every game. You know, maybe not against uh, lefties. You know, what few the Red Sox saw in the postseason, um, the, you know, they simply chose not to use him. And going forward, I'm wondering if this will become at all an issue.
0: Uh, You know what else is curious about it, though? And it's the fact that obviously Johnny Gomes, uh, uh, certainly this year distinguished himself as a, um, I guess a clubhouse presence and voice, and maybe he's occupied that. Maybe he was, you know, filled that role with Oakland, too. But this is a, uh, you know, Gomes is a player who, and I think, uh, Cameron pointed this out, uh, when we were talking about, uh, the World Series and in particular Gomes' comments regarding war. You know, Gomes was, Gomes essentially got his, his, uh, original break because of nerds. Uh, he's played, he's played under, uh, you know, the Andrew Friedman-led Rays and the Billy Bean, uh, uh, and David Force-led Oakland A's. Um you know, he's been employed uh, almost exclusively by nerds. Uh, he spent some time with the Reds, of course. Um but, it's strange that he's now taken on this uh role as the elder statesman or sort of like uh you know um, i guess a, a player who uh, who's who's noted for his uh for uh, you know his leadership skills because he's never really been a full-time player uh he's he's only gotten uh, you know uh, more than 500 plate appearances i think once uh when when he was with the reds uh, it's strange how a player, I guess, just by what, just by hanging around and, and just not, not uh, just staying in the game, um, can somehow, uh, I guess, transform his career in in that way or transform his reputation in that way.
1: Sure, and I think it's notable that when he did get, get all of those at bats, it was playing for Dusty Baker, mm-hmm. you know, who is not known as a progressive manager. Um, I know that the season in which he got the next most at-bats, I think he played in maybe 115 games, was actually for Joe Madden. However, this was in a season that the Rays lost over 100 games. And if you look down the roster at other players who got a lot of at-bats in the outfield, you're talking about guys like Joey Gathry and Damon Hollins. So it's not like you had great options of whom to play. So I think Gomes has had a very curious career, um, but whether or not he had a huge impact, if really any impact at all, on the Red Sox winning this year, it can't be quantified. It, it can only be guessed at, which is one of the big mysteries of, of baseball. We would like to quantify everything, um, you know, but what, what we really can't. You know, where's the cause and where's the effect, Carson? Um, we we don't know the answer to that.
0: No, but it does remind me of a. Uh of a if Bill Cosby released a, a rap album, I think he should call it Cause and Effect. <laughs> Cause and Effect. What do you think about that? Very good. Yeah. All right. Uh, That's listen,
1: not bad, Carson.
0: <laughs> listen, I want to talk. Uh, uh, I, um, this is a this is a professional segue here, David Uh The Red Sox. Uh, we're talking about, of course, the Red Sox Cardinals World Series. Um, you've you've uh, published some interviews, uh, some Q and A's. Uh, since the end of the World Series, and one of them is with a Cardinals prospect, and I think it actually dovetails nicely with a uh, discussion of them as a team in the World Series because they they've, they seem to they've been unreasonably successful in recent years, the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, and one of the prospects you spoke with uh, recently, one of the people you spoke with recently, is Cardinals prospect Stephen Piscotti, who's been playing a lot of red f- uh, right field for them, uh, some center field for them in the minor leagues. He was drafted at Stanford last year, I guess. And one of the things you asked him about was his experience in the Cardinal system, which, you know, over the last couple of years, that Cardinal system, whether it's because of Maziliak or however you pronounce his name, um, or if it's because of the uh, departed Jeff Lunau, who's now uh, the GM of the Astros, regardless of what it is, that that system has been crazy good in terms of uh, producing talent. And producing talent from players who don't have the pedigree, right? Like, you know, you see a bunch of 20th round picks uh, making their major league roster. I'm curious uh, just about your sort of impressions of what Piscotty had to say uh, about being in the Cardinal system. He said he was impressed. Uh, he said they have a good balance of hands-on and hands-off. Um, but did you get a sense from when you were talking with him that he was uh, – that he was really, you know, I, I'm going to say the word impressed again because I'm not that great of an interviewer, but that he, he's sort of, uh, that he's in good hands, I guess, and, and learning as much as he can as possibly within that system, or if anything he said reveals to you what's so successful about that system.
1: Well, I think that Scotty probably does exemplify, you know, the so-called Cardinal way, which I took a little bit of a tweak at early in the World Series. Uh, and John Farrell said something very interesting uh, in one of his pregame interviews going into the series, which is, is he lauded the Cardinals' uh, two-strike hitting approach as being a big reason that they did hit so well with runners in scoring position this year. Um, talking about how they stay inside the ball, shorten up, go the other way, which really uh, is Piscotti's approach. He spoke about that in the interview. Uh, Piscotti's uh, Category, incidentally, is a little better. He's not a low round pick like some of the Cardinals overachievers. Um, you know, he was a first round supplemental, I believe. You know, but he's limited, in perhaps defensively, and there have been questions about his power. But he is a pure hitter, and uh, he's the type of player who's going to fit in very well with that team if he continues to progress because he's going to put up quality at bats. Something Cardinals hitters did very well this year. The Red Sox get a lot of credit for the quality at bats, but the Cardinals, with arguably less talented hitters um, did nearly as good of a job
0: yeah that, that, I mean you know, that, he
1: may he he could be replacing you know Carlos Beltran probably not quite as early as this coming season i wouldn't think you know, but maybe not that far down the future.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the, it is interesting how they, how they have their hitters. I mean, they, you know, they've brought up, uh, you know, recent memory guys like Matt Carpenter and Alan Craig, who again, don't have, um, necessarily crazy, um, crazy good pedigree, but, and, and they don't also have, they don't have monstrous power or anything like that, but they make great contact and they, they really control the strike zone. And that, and that seems to be, um, what Piscotty has too. And you mentioned the defense. You know, neither Carpenter nor Alan Craig. I mean, Alan Craig was sort of a third baseman they moved him over to first base. It seems like what that what that organization has done is to say, okay, can you hit? Well, okay, we'll find we'll find you a defensive home. Just keep hitting and you're going to play on the team.
1: Which is sort of the old Oakland A's money ball, you know, the original idea. If you can get on base, put up quality at bats, you're going to play. You know, maybe that's the cardinal idea. I know the Cardinals value defense a lot. They had some holes there this year. Their defensive efficiency was not good. Um, you know, they have the best defensive catcher in baseball, certainly. But otherwise, you go around their, you know, their lineup, and no, they're not outstanding uh, defensively. I'm guessing that is something they will probably try to fix. You know, if fix is the right word for it, this offseason.
0: Yeah, well, I... I, In, and I
1: including the... Which, which ironically might include replacing their shortstop, you know, Pete Cosma, who is one of their better defensive players.
0: Yeah, right, yeah. And, well, yeah, he's... I think he's kind of the only guy, because John Jay is not really a center fielder. Carlos Beltran's not really a fielder at all at this point, probably. Um, Carpenter, you know, David Fries is probably a little bit below average, uh, I don't necessarily know what's going on with Alan Craig. I, you know, he might be okay for a first baseman. Uh, but yeah, there are a lot of holes. And then of course, yeah, Cosmo was the one guy, uh, who probably, you know, did have was probably an average defender at his position. Uh, but then again, uh, he did not hit a lot. So, um, so that's yeah, that's going to be a problem. Um, well, am I allowed to keep asking about Steven Piscotti
1: Uh, feel free, Carson.
0: Well cuz he also brought up this point about the uh um, oh he he talks about the uh, what was it the we, we take out the yellow pad he calls it the yellow pad <laughs> and yeah. talking about the previous games but so so what the way the thing he says he says uh, it's more uh, going to double a it's more of a mental approach right and um he says that uh, one thing that's changed is that at the AA level, he hasn't done this previously. Is they, they take out a yellow pad and they and they break down the previous game or previous games. Um, but you have exposure to all levels of minor leaguers. I know. Um, you you've done uh, you've done interviews with you do a lot you go up to to uh, to Pawtucket you, you you've done AA. Uh, you of course you go out to Lowell a bunch. Um, so you've you've sort of had conversations with all level of minor leaguers, exposure to all different uh, levels and systems, and I'm curious if if uh, sort of within the, that context, if Piscotti's comments regard to breaking down a game uh, were interesting to you, or if if it was different than something you've seen, if if there's sort of a change in the way that teams will approach games starting at the AA level or if that's maybe unique to the Cardinal system?
1: That is a question, Carson, that I actually want to delve into a little bit. Um, I should talk to some people in the the Cardinals scouting and not scouting but player development system. I don't know if Piscotti's mention of yellow pad was literal or figurative. Um, I think it is possibly figurative. But... Um, yes, it sounds like they do spend a lot of time schooling, you know, per se, uh, of, you know, their players, and, um, you know, maybe that's part of the Cardinal way. Um, I, you know, I don't really know what other organizations do in that jump. You know, we've all heard a thousand times that the biggest hurdle is, is double A, but how much of that hurdle is mental as opposed to physical, you know, it is a good question. I have long thought that players, because they have heard that so much, tend to maybe press a little bit when they get to A, thinking, okay, here is, you know, the benchmark. I, I need to do it here to prove that I'm good enough to play in the major leagues. Right. As it, opposed to just going up and just naturally letting their talent take over.
0: Oh, yeah, that's interesting. How the perception that exists that Double A is sort of where players get weeded out would be the actual thing that weaves players out at Double A. Sort of like a, it's, it's a,
1: like a, a Mobius. Script. Very much sports. Sports psychology, I, you know, is a fascinating subject to me, and I think that the difference between good player and a not very good player very often is mental, as as opposed to physical. Um, I think certainly Johnny Gomes mentally is. Uh, a better player. Let, let me rephrase that. Johnny Gomes is a better player because he is mentally capable of performing on the big stage. The numbers haven't really shown that if you look at them. Um that I think is, you know, I know we're going back to the earlier discussion. Right. Gomes has never hit worth crap in the postseason in his life. Mm-hmm. Um one swing of the bat maybe is going to change that perception. You know, but the numbers really don't. I mean, look at Jack Morris. Uh, you take out Jack Morris's brilliant game, and his postseason numbers are not nearly as good as, you know, as you think they would be. Right. You know, John Lester, conversely, um, has fantastic postseason numbers, which maybe, you know, once again, circling back, play into why he was left in, into this game. You know, no should. with Tom Kelly would have been the manager of the Twins in '91. You know, had they been playing in a National League park rather than in Minnesota that year, should Kelly have hit for Jack Morris in a scoreless game in the late innings, as opposed to let him continue? Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that, it, It's a hypothetical question that hadn't occurred to me until this moment, and it, and it fascinates me because memory tells me that Morris did not pitch. An especially clean game outside of the run column. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe he gave up seven, eight, nine hits and a couple of walks. But he was the guy that um, the Twins wanted on the mound, as opposed to, I guess, what Rick Aguilera, I'm assuming, was a closer. So, you know, once again, hindsight being 2020, 20, it was exactly the right decision. You kept your horse out there, and he won. You know, but what wasn't necessarily the right move.
0: Would an actual horse pitch very well in a World Series game
1: though? Uh if it would if it was Mr. Ed, I would think the answer is, is very true.
0: It's true. I think you that's... know,
1: you get you you put a little bit of peanut butter on his mouth and when the manager comes to the mound, you know, he's John Lackey. He says, This is my batter, this is my game.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I, I have to think that a talking horse would really throw opponents off their game.
1: That's... Um I mean, Carson, that that might be the truest word spoken in this entire uh, podcast.
0: All right, well, let's end it there then. Uh, if we're going to end, let's end on a truth because uh, I have a feeling uh, uh, I'll only drag it down from there.
1: I think our win probability went up precipitously at yeah. the comment after being very low earlier in the podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so I, I, be... I agree a hundred percent, Carson. A
0: walk-off comment, as it were. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, you've uh, you've completed your mission here. Uh, I, you can stay on the phone, but we're going to hang up so far as the listener's concerned.
1: Our listeners will be very happy with that, Carson. Yes,
0: they will. All right. That is uh, David <laughs> Lorla, curator of the uh, Q&A series, the Fangraphs Q&A series, at, at Fangraphs.com. Thank you very much for joining us uh, from your home somewhere in the Boston area, David Lorla. I'm not going to give out your address or anything, but I'll say somewhere in the Boston <laughs> area. Perfect. All right. That is uh, that is Dave Laurel Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.